Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. Named one of 2022's top women in communications, Debbie Thomas is a social impact visionary. With over 20 years of experience overseeing and delivering communications and global campaigns, she is a particular expert in communicating social and environmental impact. Devi creates movements, encouraging people to really take action. So buckle up, everyone. We will be hearing from a master in social impact communications. In her new role, Devi is the global head of industry solutions at Microsoft Philanthropies Tech for Social Impact. We'll be hearing more on this role and how technology can work to help deliver better societal impact shortly. Devi says, not-for-profits are a misnomer. I consider myself to be an active part of the problem-solving sector. So Devi, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Katie. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, complete pleasure. And Devi, I wanted to start our conversation off today. You started out as a trained journalist and then moved into nonprofit marketing and communications, but you're now the global leader in industry solutions for Microsoft Philanthropies. What has driven this journey? And, and can you tell us a bit about this new role as well? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. You know, I actually enjoy telling this story uh, a lot, primarily because I'm really hoping that it resonates with, with other people. What I like to talk about is how, you know, I, I started as a journalist, uh, really in, in a newsroom, bottom of the rung, as, as most journalists do. And I was drawn to that profession because I liked using words and I liked telling stories. But what I found myself doing sort of in the height of the early dot-com era was rather than sort of covering, you know, product launches and IPOs. I found myself drawn to far more analytical storytelling. And there was a conference I was sent to by the editor of the, the Newswire that I worked at. And at the conference, we, we were asked to you know, go from room to room and cover various uh, product and technology specific uh, announcements and uh, movements. And I walked into a room where they talked about squatting rights of citizens in Jakarta and what it meant for abandoned urban buildings and whether you know when people use these as residences what does that mean for urban development and how does it you know follow that that a that a urban location anywhere in the world uh, you know could needs to ultimately uh, expand and grow to support its citizens in the best way possible and how are we looking at development in that way and i'm sort of fascinated by the topic had nothing to do with what i was sent there to cover but really fascinated by the topic, worked a little bit more along, along the lines of that story, talked to some really important 
leaders in the, in the ASEAN era, area in Jakarta and others to write the story. And I came out with sort of this, this piece and I put it in front of my editor. And I said, I really want to, I want, really want to tell the story about the squatting rights of workers in Jakarta in, in these abandoned warehouses. And he read it and he looked at me and he said, this is an op-ed. <laughs> and I thought to myself, in fact, it is uh, an op-ed. And it was one of the probably earlier signs that I didn't belong in the newsroom, right? I had far too much at stake on some of these issues that I was writing about. And I really wanted to affect the story and create the impact much more than just cover, uh, cover the problem and the different ways people were tackling the solution. So I think that that is a very early on uh, definition of sort of how I ended up in the nonprofit sector. And I, I tell a lot of people that story because it's, uh, it's defining why people join nonprofits to begin with, right? There's, a, there's an opportunity to uh, spend, become proximate to the cause and to spend more time working through impact and telling the story of when impact actually works which feels a little bit like you're getting closer to problem solving, right? And I think as, as, as my career progressed, I, I moved from nonprofit to much more sort of strategy consulting around nonprofits, spending a lot of time in sort of the corporate social responsibility space, very similar to sort of the work that, that you do and that, and that other sort of, you know, strategy consultants and ESG consultants have done. And I, I really found that there was so much value in building that connection between uh, corporations and everything that corporations were trying to do and the, and the good that they could do when they partnered with the right nonprofit and how effective that business value could be in the story of community building. And when that, when that role started to come up, this partnership between businesses and nonprofits, it was around that time that I got a call from the UN Foundation and the United Nations Foundation uh, for those who don't know, uh, it's based in D.C. and New York and is really the arm that connects uh, people and ideas to the U.N. And this was one of those those really defining moments in a career where I thought, OK, I get to go back to the nonprofit sector, but I get to do something unique and different that is you know, building a global movement. And that, that work at the United Nations Foundation really held the stage, that chapter, for me to learn about you know, global, global movements and global change and how long it takes and how hard that work really is. And, and as much as we would engage the public sector and the private sector in the work, it, it became clear that you know, the, the path to impact on some of these causes is this sort of lifelong, generations-long uh, commitment that a lot of people in the sector make. And I started, I was very drawn to that in a lot of ways, but at the same time, hungry for quicker change, which is sort of this, this mode you get into when you're a journalist, right? Because you're covering five stories in one day and you think, I, I just got all of this done by 4 p.m. And then you walk into, you know, a, a cause leading a cause movement and you think, whoa, this is going to take me the next hundred years <laughs> to effectively change everything. And it was, it was a global health movement specifically designed on, on helping children get access to life-saving vaccines. And so from, from the UN Foundation, sort of moving to the private sector, I had my first chance to say, okay, now I'm here in a social impact space within the private sector. It was a, it was a tech company, a large tech company. And I had the opportunity to, to look back at the nonprofit sector from, from that lens 
and say, how do, how do I address change this way? The tech sector can move faster sometimes, right? There's much more of a fail fast mentality. So can I take some risks here and really start to make that change? And I think that, that, that movement to tech and then, and then now to Microsoft, which is still part of that tech sector, has really been the, this place where I've understood, like looking back in you know, retrospect, I've understood that all these ca- career in my definition is just simply not linear at all. But the story does make sense, right? Because at the end of the day, social impact and, and sort of the motivation I had to, to drive change, become proximate to the problem, and then become really close to the solution always existed. And that portfolio of skills that I built along the way sort of helped me, helped me move from one place to another. Uh, but at the same time, not in, in a defined way, not just as marketer or just as a communicator, right? But so much more as sort of a problem solver. Um, so with that in mind, I sort of thought, well, I can do this anywhere, right? As long as I have, you know, the right kind of motivation, the right team around me and the right values to address the problem, uh, I think this is something I can do anywhere. And I think that's a little bit of how I, I like to talk about this journey, because again, I'm hoping that it resonates with others who are trying to do the same thing. And, and how did you find that move? I mean, quite a lot of people who I've come across and met, and, and I guess my experience too, is it's very different culturally within those different sectors, whether it's journalism to to nonprofit or nonprofit to corporate. I mean, what have you learned or what advice would you potentially have for others so that they can stand on your shoulders and, and you know, <laughs> learn rather than reinvent the wheel or re make the same mistakes again? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is a difficult change. And but a lot of those barriers existed internally to me because of sort of perceived barriers that I felt existed when you left the nonprofit sector, right? This idea that there was a bias in the type of leadership that you you do at a nonprofit sector. Does does it have the right kind of strategic lens? Is it too scrappy, right? Is there a way to actually move fast? Were you able to take risks? Did you have enough data to make informed decisions, right? A lot of those questions, I think, come up when you leave the sector and you're looking for roles in other sectors because those sectors are saying, well, here we are able to do all of this because we have all of these inputs, right? And what I would argue is that the leadership skills that you have in the nonprofit sector are uniquely perfect to really take you into a role of, of being both a contributor, but a learn-it-all in any other sector, predominantly the private sector and often the public sector, because you know how to do things in environments that where innovation is a necessity, right? Just to survive. And I think that is a really big thing that I would tell people is to lean in on that that learning uh, and the fact that you really could do more with less, right? And that really helps you as you as you move into another sector. So that inherent bias that exists, you know, both with my within my own brain, right? Am, am I going to be good enough, or could I actually, you know, move into another sector that thinks differently? And then there's the bias that exists on their side, right, or on the hiring uh, employer side, where they might be saying, you know, we don't want someone from this sector because you know they don't have the exact skill set we're looking at in health or in tech or in finance, right? 
And I think this, this kind of idea of, you know, how we keep, we keep defining careers in terms of the sector you're in, or in terms of this vertical, like marketing or communications, I think this is where I've, I've seen great value in saying, wow, this, this has nothing to do with what sector I was in, or even what vertical or, or what sort of, you know, career path you may have defined for me or labeled me with. What I've really realized is that my career is made up of a chapter of the things that I learned and not the things that I did. Um, and the, the moment I reframed it that way, it was a lot easier for me to understand how to move between them. And I want to stick with the theme of learning as much as I can from you, Debbie. <laughs> so our podcasts are all about practical insights that people can then take and apply to their work, hence the last question. And my next question is very similar in tapping into your experience around that kind of communications, that marketing piece with that wealth of experience that you have, but also your focus on that impact element. What does it take to effectively turn a nice impact driven idea or outcome into something that's actually a campaign that inspires, motivates and, and gets people taking action? Yeah, I, I love this question for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I, I like it is because there's different answers depending on who you talk to. But I can tell you a little bit of overall what I've seen in this space and having been here for over 20 years, understand sort of how movements get built over time. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about what starts a movement, uh, which in these days can be a hashtag, right? <laughs> Literally. But when I think about it, it comes down to bringing people proximate to the problem that needs to be solved. And that's what you see in, in cases like, like George Floyd and, and uh, you know, scenarios that have happened in under Me Too, things that are, you know, a lot more more recent in movement building, but that also can be true for, you know, movements around getting the vote out or understanding how to build a, a campaign around global children's health, right? This, this, this idea of getting proximate to the problem, I think, is a very important piece of this uh, movement building. I've heard from uh, Brian Stevenson, who heads the Equal Justice Initiative, and he talks about this idea of you know, making sure that justice is served to people who are wrongfully convicted of crimes. And he says, the minute you meet a person and understand uh, that this person has been wrongfully convicted and needs and deserves counsel and the right kind of legal intervention to make sure their innocence is proven, you get proximate to the problem and you really can't turn away after that. After that, your question that you're asking next is, how do I help? And that gets us to the next phase, which is let's give people a reason to help and a way to help. And once you do that, that call to action is really where you start to see engagement and start to feel community with other people who are engaging as well. I'm sure you know this, Katie, but the number one reason someone gives to a cause is because it makes them feel good. And that's a little bit counter to how we think about giving, which is so uh, incredibly selfless. But in so many ways, that act of giving of our time or advocacy or our voice or our money is, is in very much is because we like the way it makes us feel. So let's give people more of a reason to feel good about themselves 
And the last thing I would say about movement building is really how do we define the impacts that people are making within that movement? Is it bite sized contributions that you can really show created an overall change? Did it move the needle on something? And I think that idea of defining real time impact is a big piece of movement building today. And it's one of those things that defines the movements that have you know, gotten off and started strong, particularly using social media, but then have they sustained that momentum over time and the sustaining momentum piece is harder. Um, so that, you know, what we really need to see in a movement that lasts a long time is what's the models of engagement? Are you getting people to move from volunteer to donor to ambassador in some way? Are they bringing other volunteers and donors with them? Right? Has it been personalized enough for them? And that's when you see this sort of, you know, growth of advocates that have been there over time. I ran a campaign at the UN Foundation called Shot at Life. And the concept of the campaign was that we needed to get more vaccines to children under the age of five in areas where completely preventable diseases were killing these children. And at the time that I was running this, I was a first-time mom. And we sort of, uh, you know, walked into a room and, and strategized on the best way to build this movement. And we targeted uh, moms. And it was probably one of the most interesting moments because I'm uh, talking about getting proximate to the problem. I had a child of my own. They all had children. They understood how easy these vaccines were. They understood what could happen to the child if they didn't get that vaccine. And oftentimes we were able to take our most, uh, you know, ardent supporters with us to vaccine campaigns around the world to show them what the, what the work actually meant. And so I think there's, there's so much value in, you know, how much personalized relevance the cause has to an individual, how they tell other people about it, and how you maintain that sustained momentum by keeping them involved in all stages of, of engagement within the nonprofit sector. So I think that's, that's something that I've been uh, sort of thinking a lot about in terms of movement building and what makes what makes movements live longer than others. Oh, Devi, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. For anybody listening, these are pearls of wisdom. This does not come out easily from, you can read pages and pages and pages and pages of kind of formal text on how to do these things, but this stuff is super useful. So take notes, guys. Um, Devi, thank you. Um, so moving up to, to the, the current day now, Debbie, I mean, you are currently, and I, I quote, listening and learning from the world's nonprofits to understand how tech can create lasting change. What does that mean? What have you learned so far? And what are you going to do with it? Yeah, this has always been sort of a, a part of my job that I have loved so much since moving into the tech sector, um, because I get to be the voice of the nonprofit sector at the table. And as hard as it is to move sectors and sort of join these spaces where you don't traditionally see someone who comes from your background, right? You really are able to learn a lot from the ways that the tech sector has identified problem solving for nonprofits and to use technology to do that. So what I do is I bring as much data and insights as possible to the table and not my own. I reached out to nonprofit communities around the world to really understand where the pain points are 
And then I have the ability to say, now let's build the technology that helps solve these pain points, but build technology that's relevant to the sector, make it affordable, make it easy to use, you know, make sure that there's an understanding that once this technology is set up, it's going to set up mission success for you and ensure continuity of your programs and services and communities. So when I think about that, uh, some of the more recent learnings that I've been sharing and what I've been hearing from the community, you know, the first is really just about how the great resignation or the great reset has affected nonprofits. We are post-pandemic world mostly, right? I, I know that there are exceptions to that here today, and we're learning what is here to stay. What are those changes that happened during the pandemic that are here to stay versus those that were just temporary? And one of the things we're hearing is that the way that the pandemic affected the employer-employee relationship, that contract that existed, that you heard about through terms like the great resignation, that relationship between a nonprofit and their teams and staff also changed. And it changed in ways that has profoundly affected and changed the sector. This is largely because when nonprofit employees leave, they're not just not coming back, but those positions are staying unfilled, right? So we are in a scenario where we're looking at full-on programs, often services being shut down because there simply isn't, aren't the teams to do this. And then you dive one, one level deeper and you look at communities like the fundraising community and nonprofits or the program services community, and you see high levels of burnout that are effectively causing these nonprofit leaders to ask questions around mental health and well-being for their teams. And again, this is a sector where, you know, people are so used to the sector providing services versus being in demand of these services, right? And I think that is something that I've seen time and time again in these conversations with nonprofit leaders is how do we think about mental health and well-being for this sector? And then how do we think about getting our employees this kind of support so that they stay in their jobs? And by doing so, continue to impact communities that are affected by it. I think a lot of people thought that the reason that communities were suffering during the pandemic is a whole host of reasons why, which are the same that where we were all suffering, right? There were all sorts of things that shut down. But one of the things that people don't realize is it's really because a lot of these services continue to, to be uh, understaffed or unstaffed or really uh, vacancies that go unfilled in the sector. I'm also hearing a lot about recession proofing right now. Um, you know, if we belong to the private sector, this is a conversation we've been having for a while. How is the recession going to affect everyone? How does it affect the real estate markets? What about inflation for everyday citizens? We, we, we hear this time and time again. Well, for the nonprofit sector, recession means something different. And do we understand the nuances of that? For example, we know that the volume of individual giving is going down and will go down during a recessionary period. We can see that from the last two recessions. But what we do know is that the amount of each individual gift goes up. So this means we're in a scenario where donors are willing to give more. And we're really put in a scenario where we're understanding that if they give more and they're willing to become recurring donors, they'll actually stay with us for longer. And we might be able to sort of balance out 
the negative impacts of the volume of online giving going down. And so we look at the recession factors within the nonprofit and say, okay, what does that mean for the tools and technology that they need to make recurring gifts happen, right? It's a great example of how I might translate a trend and listen and learn from the sector into some way that we can support the sector. So interesting, because Debbie, I thought when I was going to ask you that question, it would be like super cool, techie jazz hands. I mean, <laughs> it is Gizmo and here's a robot who's going to come and be your new nonprofit person. And actually it's like, no, it comes down to people yeah. and looking after people really, really well. And yeah. that is just, yeah, <laughs> reset for me anyway. <laughs> right. And, and it's also, it's so interesting you said that because I think my job is to humanize the technology because otherwise it's just tech and it doesn't really work for anybody, right? So this is, this is why it's so important to really understand how is this technology going to be used and does it make a person's, an individual and a community's life better, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess on that note about the kind of rays of light and an opportunities piece, expanding out again, clearly, as you mentioned, we are at a really arguably very weird, can't really put my finger on the, the right description is pivotal junction you know standing on the precipice not quite sure but this kind of confluence of conflict climate change the cost of living crisis coming out of covid and you've got your eye and your finger on this kind of pulse and you know you can see this sort of stuff coming where do you see those rays of light and how can the rest of us better grasp them what do we need to do yeah, I, I guess I want to go back to a conversation you and I um, have had, and perhaps not on this on this podcast around COP twenty seven and what happened most recently at COP twenty seven. And one of the things that I uh, have learned, and you you see this now across the sector, we heard it at UNGA for those of us who were there. This idea of you know not about us without us, right? Local problems, local solutions. And I bring this theme up because I recently saw this incredible news story about how Save the Children International brought children from countries that were affected, poor nations specifically, that were affected uh, disproportionately by climate change to talk about why they believe climate change has, has affected their lives and why they think other nations should support them and their communities, and also how, how their lives have changed drastically. And sort of gave, a, you know, Save the Children gave children a voice at the table at COP27, a, a very different kind of approach uh, than, than a lot of other nonprofits took, and very innovative, actually. And this did give me hope, because this is where I actually think the the future lies right we're all in the problem solving sector and we all finally have the data that proves the problem but also gives us some insight into the solution so 5 years ago it was a very siloed approach to how you might look at some of these issues what's the business sector going to do what are these governments going to do and 5 years ago there wasn't as much data as we have today and not as much clean data so with that, do we have this opportunity now as the problem-solving sector, all of us together, 
to, to think about solutions based on real hard data and, and make decisions accordingly. And that I think is, is probably one, one ray of hope. The other thing I'll say is, and I'm going to use a tech term on this one, and I don't consider, I consider myself nonprofit girl and not tech girl, but I will go ahead and use a tech term. And I'll say that, you know, solutions that we're seeing uh, work in the marketplace, whether technology or not, are open source solutions. So that term no longer just applies to tech, right? It really applies to all of social good. Um, so can you think of a sprint or a hackathon on the problems that exist in the world? And we're seeing pockets of, of solutions come from places that you, you would not anticipate. You would, you, know, you would rarely believe that problems you know, could be solved there. And here we are, right? And, I, and then that goes back to you know, where we're seeing convening power really make a difference uh, when we try to, try to solve some of these trickier kind of challenges that exist, whether it's climate change or you know, the, the cost of living and, and, and what's happening in Ukraine and others. I do think that there's something to be said about action-oriented leadership that's looked at systemic issues for too long and said, okay, I think there, there's the data now, there's the path to solve it, let's set targets, let's measure it, and let's get it done. And it, so if I look at something like women on boards, right, or women in leadership in Fortune 500, or, or I look at things like, you know, representation from uh, developing countries and and, uh, emerging markets. These are all numbers that are going up. They're going in the right direction. I think they're moving too slow, but they are moving. And these are the types of areas where I start to see that, you know, there's value in starting the conversation. It never went away. It doesn't feel like we're checking a box every time we talk about it. So how can we get more and more of some of the more most important issues around equity, around education, around, um, you know, conflict management and change management and really, you know, climate action moving in that direction, too? Yeah, absolutely. And leaning into that kind of business view, I mean, there are if you read a certain stream of narrative from 2022 and potentially before that as well. There's been this odd backlash or slight kind of um, querying of the role businesses should be playing in trying to tackle social and environmental issues. And, you know, has business stepped over the line or has the idea of ESG impact investing, for example, gone too far? How do you see that? What's, What's the experience that you've had? I'm actually quite happy to see businesses reevaluate their role in social and environmental issues, understanding not only that we have to accelerate much faster, but also that the role that they played before was not perhaps as effective, right? And I think the number one reframing or re, the new lens that's come on this is that innovation doesn't just live in the for-profit sector. I think that's really important to understand because the minute that happens and you change your lens and perspective on that, you understand why you can approach the table with with low ego, but with the resources to scale, which is exactly what a business and public sector uh, motion can do, right? So, So kind of approach the table in that way that is we want to hear about solutions that work. We want to hear about solutions that are on the ground that work, 
that are locally defined, locally sourced, locally created. And then we want to do whatever we can to scale those where it works, right? And I I really love this approach. I think this goes back to my comment on open source, but it also goes to my comment on the fact that businesses are now learning from other sectors and they're learning that path forward, understanding that, you know, the the things that got us here are not what's going to get us to the future. And I think this is, uh, you know, out of all my years and sort of, you know, corporate social responsibility, corporate citizenship, shared value, ESG, I don't care what you want to call it. I think this is the, the closest we've come to collaboration and collective action. Fingers crossed. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, Debbie, I'm going to start wrapping up this conversation, but I absolutely could listen to you sharing your insights and wisdom all day. And so I'm going to pick one more time, which is if you could roll back the clock and start again, what would be the wisdom that you would share with your younger self? What do you wish that you had known when you'd sort of set out that would perhaps be useful advice for somebody else who's trying to deliver impact through their organization and listening to this conversation today? Yeah, I I think, you know, it's interesting. I think impact really lives everywhere. No one person owns impact. And that is probably the best way to think about uh, any future role that you can have. I, I know people who have really defined their careers by being able to do one thing, whether that's being able to write or being able to do numbers or account accounting, right? Or being able to, you know, be an engineer. And I would actually argue that all of these skill sets in some way have a role to play in all of those issues you and I just talked about, right? And there there seems to be no nonprofit sector or, or problem solving sector, if you will that uh, you know, says we don't need all of these things to all of these skills in order to make change. So I would I would first start by, you know, removing any perceived or real barrier to to moving into into a career in the impact space. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is, you know, the nonprofit sector is the only sector that's defined by what it's not. So as much as possible, I would urge you, whether you're building partnerships with nonprofits or you're in the habit of, you know, working for nonprofits and trying to build private sector, public sector partnerships, you know, do your best to define the sector for what it does do. And as long as we talk about impact in real terms, in data terms, in, in, in transparent terms, I think we have an opportunity to change the perception a little bit of how fast, how innovative, and how remarkably um, effective uh, a lot of nonprofit programs can be. Oh my gosh, heroing them. And I I take your point earlier on where you'd mentioned or or sort of coined that it wasn't nonprofit, it was much more a problem-solving sector. And I definitely take that away with me from this conversation. And therefore, Debbie, my last question to you today, what's next for you? Yeah, you know, I have thought a lot about whether it is possible for someone like me who comes from my background, who comes from, you know, a nonprofit sector with a journalism degree to really effectively create change in a business environment, in a, you know, global 
public sector environment. And I've come to the conclusion that anything is possible. And I really feel excited about that and humbled by it. So I would say what's next for me is social impact and really trying to get there any way I can. Oh my goodness. Well, a massive, yeah, hero. Woohoo. Go for it. Do it. You can absolutely do do it. Um, Debbie, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your wisdom so generously with us. As I mentioned earlier, completely useful pearls of wisdom there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katie. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 